0: The Shake-Up is brought to you by HubSpot Podcast Network. That's right. The HubSpot Podcast Network
1: is a one-stop audio destination for business professionals. It's where education meets inspiration with amazing shows like My First Million, where you can hear stories from the entrepreneurs who made it big. And where the hosts, Sam and Sean, don't
0: shy away from the tough questions.
1: With access to a collection of marketing, sales, service, and operation shows, you'll have all the information you need as your company goes from startup to scale up and beyond.
0: Listen, learn, and grow with the HubSpot Podcast Network at hubspot.com slash podcast network.
1: You're listening to The Shake-Up, where we explore the business decisions that dare to be different and the leaders who are shaking up their industries. My name is Alexis Gay. I'm Brienne Kimmel, and on each episode, we'll bring research and data-backed insights to dig into the minds of business leaders and learn how they make the decisions to challenge the status quo. You can support the show by following us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or, honestly, wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there, hanging out, talking business, ready and waiting to shake things up with you. Okay. Today on The Shake-Up, we have a great show for you. We're going to be talking with Enrique de Brugas, the founder and co-CEO of Brex, how he grew the company to hundreds of millions in revenue, and how he made some of the important decisions that got him to that point. Not only that, we'll be talking about how Enrique, from a wee pre-teen age, began building his entrepreneurial mindset. So let's get started. You know, when I think about Brex, my connection is actually very personal because I have a Brex card. I'm thrilled to have it. I obviously love the product, but the truth is that I have a Brex card for my LLC because I couldn't get approved for a regular business credit card by the bank.
0: Yeah, actually, I've heard this quite a lot, specifically for um, LLCs, for small businesses, for even early-stage startups. It can be really hard to get the banking system all set up. The one thing that I love about Brex as well is they're really an all-in-one offering because they're doing expense reporting. They've essentially built all of the things that you need to really understand your business from the very beginning. So I've been very impressed so far. And that's aligned with a lot of things that we've talked about before around just the rise of small businesses. And, you know, so many people are starting their own podcasts or, you know, thinking about ways to freelance or do projects on the side. And so the fact that Brex was able to support that, that's a real competitive advantage for their business. And for early stage tech companies, which is kind of their bread and butter and where they initially got started, you can also, you know, measure things like your AWS spend and a lot of uh, expenses that come up at the very early stages. And so it's nice to see that they've created this really intuitive way for businesses of all types to just track exactly what's happening behind the scenes.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's hugely important. I, <laughs> I had everything on my personal credit card for a couple months, and I was going crazy because just mentally not being able to figure out what's what, it was just taking a lot of brain power. So I'm thrilled to have a card. Plus, I like to be able to say, oh, it's a business expense, even though it all comes from the same place. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, yay, Alexis Gay, LLC, footing the bill. <laughs>
0: I mean, that sounds great. That's, uh, you know, that's that's your free lunches and, and coffees and everything else. I think oh, yes. Now that Very we're working free. from home, mm-hmm. everything is a business expense. I, I was talking to a friend that said, are we working from home or are we sleeping at the office? And I think that's still a question that's largely Ooh. still unsolved.
1: Wow, that sounds like a tweet. <laughs> did you tweet that? <laughs> I did not. <laughs> you should but OK, you know, what you pointed out, that many of us have side hustles and many of people like myself are starting podcasts or starting sub-stacks or even just like starting companies right now, it's interesting that I turned to something like Brex. And I think that the reason I did is that Brex, to me, is a brand that I associate with what I would consider like the startup stack. Like when you are starting a company or you're starting a small business venture, what are the tools that you gravitate towards? To start that business. And so to me, it was like, okay, I need Brex. I know I need QuickBooks for small business. And then I have a couple pieces of software that I use to keep the rest of my business running. I've got like a premium Notion subscription. I use some podcasting software. But I look at it as like all these different facets of like my stack that I use to run my business. And Brex is top of mind, I think in part because of just how much mind share they've earned over time within the startup and tech communities.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, their name comes up consistently with a lot of companies that I meet and that I'm working with on a daily basis. And it's like their ability to visualize your expenses and a lot of the design decisions that they've made have made this a very differentiated Mm -hmm. product that makes it more relevant and makes it feel like it's something that's uniquely designed for startups.
1: One of their primary offerings is that they'll help you scale or rather they'll grow with you. And that's not my situation at all. I don't anticipate getting some big round of funding and then hiring 30 people or whatever. But I still chose Brex because that's the card that I was most familiar with. And I I guess the reason I say all of this is I'll be curious to see if if this space gets more niche over time, if it's not just oh, the card for early stage companies, if it's like the card for creators, the card for freelancers, the card for, you know, like subscription-based companies or whatever. Yeah, I guess
0: we'll find out. I mean, the interesting thing with Brax and, you know, what I'm excited to talk to Enrique about is the fact that, you know, they start with many venture-backed startups that, may sign up with a handful of employees. But ultimately, these startups can scale very quickly and they can scale into very meaningful accounts. I know that the the startup ecosystem is very important to Brax, and that's one that they'll continue to invest a lot of programs and services to be as helpful as possible behind the scenes.
1: Yep, and I certainly think that's the move, given that that's their core customer set. Also, you mentioned serving customers that uh, will grow with them. And it's also funny because something that the way that I first learned about BREX was that it felt like they were on every billboard in New York and San Francisco for a period of time. Fun fact
0: actually, and this was when they were a little bit earlier stage, um, they actually had a BREX branded coffee shop in San Francisco. And so what? they took a page in like the, the Capital One playbook where they had a branded coffee shop, which, if you're, you know, selling to SMBs and you're also um, oh serving God, startups, so cool. it was really funny to see that startups were going there every morning to get coffee, or maybe you have VCs. Maybe with startups outside. And so it's one of these things where I think they've done a great job on um, building brand awareness and maintaining that mind share through a lot of more experiential yeah. things.
1: God, that's that's some cool shit. I just that's brilliant. I love that stuff because and that's the kind of thing, and I think that you know, I'll be curious to hear more and learn more about Enrique, but it seems like the the idea for Brex is not one that I would consider you know, blowing everything wide open. You know, having talked about Square before, like that's a concept that I think really like blew everything up. Like, holy shit, this is really novel. Brex, I feel like took a good idea and just did it really, really, really well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I would say it, where we're at today is, you know, a lot of startups are outspending each other through paid marketing or they're coming up with yep. creative ways to really differentiate. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think Brex took a little bit of a hit. There was some criticism of like, oh, wow, like, why would you do a branded coffee shop? What a waste of venture you know your your vc money but what they did really yeah. well is that's signaling like they understand who their customer is like they understand yes. small businesses they understand coffee shops they understand restaurants they understand like the needs of startups because those are those are the people that are coming in every morning to get coffee
1: i actually really mm. liked that they did that every once in a while a company does something legitimately cool and i'm like Honestly, thanks. Thank you for giving us this one little moment in the day that was like, nice, good job, (laughs) Brex. I wonder if they'll do anything like that again. I hope they do. I mean, they want to run a comedy club. Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) I mean, post-pandemic, the world is their oyster. I could see them doing like pop-up food trucks in different parts of the country. They could easily do a comedy festival. I think that's a great idea because it's so easy to sign up. And I know they want to stay very true to SMBs. And so a way to do that is to continue to to you know, just branch into different creative communities and to do more creative events. And so I would love to see them to double down on that strategy.
1: Me too. Well, you know, we've definitely been talking a lot about how great Brex is and how they've done a lot of things that were really innovative and interesting and fun and cool and not boring. I do want to talk a little bit about what, you know, I certainly consider to be a little bit of a stumbling block for the business, which was that in 2019, the company announced Brex Cash, but the launch of the company's second product, Brex Cash, was met with months of pushed launches, publicly pushed launches. Not not great. Probably a tough time over at Brex HQ. And
0: typically when these sort of delays happen, you know If this is the second product that's going to market, they have spent a lot of time with their existing customers, sort of perfecting the feature set and really figuring out, you know, how they're able to solve a number of feature requests at once through this second product. And so, you know, that actually puts them in a really difficult position with customers who are
1: eagerly awaiting this product. And to add a little bit of context around the product itself, Brex Cash is a business cash management account integrated with Brex Card. So basically Brex, like any other bank, uses the cash in those user accounts to lend it out to other banks and then they collect interest from those institutions. And so you're essentially saying to your customers, hey, we have a new product coming, we're going to manage your cash. But then before launching it, I think you definitely ran the risk of... Reducing the credibility of that product before it even hit the market, which I think is a bummer because obviously, now in hindsight, um, you know, it was able to to launch successfully. But I'm curious, what do you think is important for leaders to be thinking about during this time?
0: Yeah, the interesting thing with Brex is while this isn't, you know, as severe as crisis management, this is something where you're managing investor expectations, you're managing customer expectations. I would say that increasingly um, the relationship between tech and media is a little bit challenging. You know, I will say that historically startups have relied very heavily on traditional tech press for funding announcements and for Mm -hmm. announcing new features. I think today we're seeing a shift away from some of those things where startups
1: want to control their own narrative. What I think is important here for companies that are In a moment like this, which, like you said, this is not a crisis moment. This is not, we're out of money. This is not, we've made a huge mistake and there's been a data breach. This is just, this is going to take longer than we initially thought. I actually think it's really important for the company and the leadership to set the tone, both internally and externally, about what size problem we're dealing with here, right? Because if you sound the alarm bells and you call up all your investors and it's this big, heavy, serious situation. But if you are honest and if you are authentic, I really think that can help you weather the storm. And I think the storm itself will be a lot smaller as a result.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, typically inside of tech companies, um, you know, the team does a great job of forecasting how long something is going to take. The challenge and where sometimes it takes a little bit longer to Released some of these large-scale projects, such as like an entirely new second product, are mm-hmm. you know bottlenecks yeah. that are dependent on other companies. I think oftentimes mm-hmm. startups will choose to stay as independent and heads down on product without some of those external dependencies if they can. Yeah. But in Brex's case, you know, to deliver on this all-in-one solution for startups and small businesses and, you know, now medium to large size companies, like you're going to experience some of these delays and some of these challenges because they're doing
1: so much. I just think it's, you have a much higher burden of trust and credibility when you're dealing with people's money or with their data. I'm trying to think about what I would do in Enrique's position or in the leadership's position at Brex when you've already made this public announcement and now you have to navigate through changing it. I want to make a statement, but I want to be clear that I'm not saying that this is what I think was happening at Brex at all, but I do want to bring up that something this type of situation usually signals to me is that there was an internal communication breakdown. So again, I'm not saying that that's what happened at Brex. I don't know. I'm not even speculating that that's what happened at Brex, but I'm just saying it makes me think what is the culture of transparent and candid communication at a company if these types of things are not being communicated in the manner that they need to be. You know what I'm saying? If I was in this position as a leader, I would be I would be scared that we got into this position at all, and I would be investing as much energy in figuring out why we got there internally as I would be managing the external comms. Like I'd be doing a full post-mortem because this is the kind of thing that, yes, you can fix it. And of course, they ultimately did, you know, and people use the product. but, how can you make sure that it absolutely never happens again? Because I think this is the kind of thing that you really only get to do once.
0: Absolutely, and you you bring up such an interesting point as well. Because one concern that I had over the last year, when teams were making this transition to remote first culture, is that you know problem identification, problem sizing, um, creating a culture around flagging when to flag. Mm -hmm. issues that are coming up is actually a new muscle for a lot of companies. I'm finding that many of the best companies that have introduced a culture of radical transparency and are not afraid to Really um, quickly diagnose problems and flag it company wide. Those are the types of teams that are working really well remotely. And oftentimes that Mm -hmm. comes down to the CEO setting an expectation broadly that we are, um, you know, we're a team and teams perform best when each person is actively contributing, that they're flagging things when they're not you know, trending well or
1: when something's taking longer than expected. Totally. And a point you mentioned that I think is really important is setting expectations up front about something like that. When I was hiring at Patreon, what I would do is I uh, would share a document with all of my new hires on their first day that laid out Of course, your normal stuff, right? Like helpful things to review, blah, 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 documents to read. But then I also had a section about our team values that I'd written and gotten feedback on from the team. And then I had a little section called other things I care about. And that's where I went into my stance on honesty, professionalism, respecting and supporting your teammates and things like that. But one of the things I had in there was if you're in trouble, like if you're going to miss a deadline, tell me before you miss the deadline because I can help you. But if you tell me after the deadline has passed, I can't help you. It paid dividends because I I had a team where we just had that culture. If there's a problem, tell me. And it was never met with, you know, I don't get, like, angry. It's just like, oh, amazing. Okay, cool. Now I know. How do we fix it? Yeah, that's
0: great. I mean, I really love this idea of – Values at the team level, you know. I think a lot of companies Mm. invest in company-wide values, and the challenge with them is they are oftentimes very high-level. You know, it's like we're a team, we're very open, we care (laughs) about the environment. Like, it's all of these very high-level, lofty goals that make people feel good when they join the company. To have Mm. team-level goals is really awesome because then you start to specialize based on things that your individual team cares about in the context
1: of, you know, your particular role inside of the company. Totally agree. Okay, let's switch gears for a second. I want to talk a little bit about something that Brex did that it sounds like really contributed to their success. You know, when you're a Brex card user, you gain points on the card and you have the opportunity to spend them with a series of partners. And a lot of them are really startup-relevant partners like AWS, Slack, Zoom, etc. There's a lot of obvious reasons why that's a great move strategically for Brex, but one of them I think is the signaling. You know, by choosing this set of partners as your rewards redemption partners, you're signaling what type of customers you're looking for.
0: Absolutely, yeah, this is really smart from a marketing perspective. Keep in mind, I mean, Brex does have many of the standard perks that you would get with other credit cards as well, like you know, it's eight eight x point on rideshare, it's five x points on travel. They have rush, you know, restaurants. But the thing that I liked yeah. is they were the first credit card to really. Um, oh, like directly communicate that there were 3x points on software. And so what what they, I mean, they say recurring Mm. software. So it's things such as AWS, Slack, you know, Figma, Notion, any of the tools that people are using day to day. It was really awesome to see that Brex was building this directory of, you know, perks and bonus credits and benefits and all of these things that you need to run your business in a way that it was very clear that they were uniquely designed for startups and for small businesses.
1: I think that's a great point, and I think calling out the software piece in particular is something that I know is going to speak to a lot of founders and small teams and early stage companies and stuff like that.
0: From a distribution standpoint, it's great because Brex is then able to do more partner marketing with Slack or Gusto or Asana or Freshworks, like Mm. any company that they're offering some of these really progressive partner perks. They also have the benefit of doing partner marketing with them, which Mm. is awesome because then they can actually access, you know, the customer base of a lot of these software companies that had already been around for a number of years and that already had, you know, a large percentage of startups using their product. And so it was great just from a
1: a market coverage perspective. Oh, that's a good point. Well, I'm excited to learn more. We're going to take a quick break. And after the break, we'll talk to Enrique. We're going to hear how he thinks about scaling Brex, obviously. Hello. That's the whole reason we're here. But we're also going to learn how a preteen Enrique got his first cease and desist. You always remember your first, you know? And how he managed millions of dollars at the retirement-worthy age of 16. All that and more coming up after this quick break. Today's episode is sponsored by those fine folks over at HubSpot. Managing conversations with prospects and customers and creating remarkable experience can be tough. HubSpot wants to change that. That's why they created a CRM platform that makes it easy to align across teams. Oh, it's so much
0: easier. With HubSpot's unified system of record, all teams can create a better customer experience
1: without missing a beat. We love a unified system of record. We always say that. <laughs> You can install live chat on your website and allow sales or support to get in touch with prospects directly. Or send marketing emails on behalf of sales reps or customer success managers. Not to mention, it allows prospects to book meetings with reps without wasting time. Yeah, and
0: best of all, teams can get access to all of a contact's history, so they can have more informed
1: conversations with prospects and customers and design a better overall experience. The result? All your customer people can align around the same goals. Consistently great customer journeys that drive growth and lifetime loyalty. Learn more about how you can scale your company without scaling complexity at HubSpot.com. We are back. And may I be the first to say, I am so excited to talk with today's guest. He's the founder and co CEO of Brex. Enrique DuBragas, welcome to the shakeup.
2: Thank you for having me. Super excited to be here.
1: Yeah, we are thrilled to have you. Yeah, this is going to be a ton of fun. So,
0: Enrique, we've been talking about how Brex has grown to over 59 million in revenue, and we've we're going to spend some time on the company's focus on SMBs and not just startups. And we want to do a deep dive on a lot of the partnerships and
1: how many of the rewards-based models have come about. A lot of exciting stuff to talk about on the numbers front. We're also excited to get inside your mind to hear about how you're growing the company and how you make decisions. And I thought it would actually be a fun place to start to let you know that I'm a Brex user myself. I'm a Brex cardholder.
2: Amazing. Love that.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. I really like Alexis's point earlier, you know, especially as
0: someone that's recently created an LLC, that's building a new career as essentially a self-taught comedian. I feel like Brex continuously delivering new products and new solutions is really interesting because historically for someone getting a business off the ground, they'd have to discover multiple different tools where Brex is essentially rolling up all these tools into a single place. Um, Why do you think traditional banks have been so hesitant to do so? Or is this something that's been completely um, overlooked on their part?
2: The problem of the banks is is purely technology. So most of them run on these systems that were built like 20, 30 years ago. So imagine you want to build anything. You have to go and integrate or change something in the core that, you know, hasn't been touched for 20 years. Right. Mm. So what we... Kind of did at Brex, which is we we knew this and we basically said, hey, we're going to rebuild the entire core software stack from scratch. We're not going to use any of these like legacy software players that the banks used, mm-hmm. which a lot of fintechs in the past did. We're just going to rebuild everything from scratch. So I don't think that the banks never had the idea of like, well, let's build this. And a lot of them tried for many years. It's just really hard for them to build on top of their existing systems.
1: That's really interesting. It sounds like what you're saying is that other fintech companies had maybe attempted to solve this problem. I'm curious, why was Brex ultimately more successful?
2: I think that it had a little bit with do with timing and a little bit to do with, um, you know, just our own experience, right? Like, I think we had built a fintech company before starting Brex that was a payment processing company, and we saw a lot of the issues of the industry of... Um, you know, basically having these legacy technologies and trying to build on top of them. So it was something that we felt very strongly about more than I think most founders before. And I think the other thing is just about capital, right? Like I think, Mm. you know, five, 10 years ago, it was really hard um, to raise a lot of capital for FinTech. Like FinTech wasn't a thing, right? And it was really hard to attract a lot of the best engineering talent for fintech, like because it wasn't a thing. So if you're hiring engineers and the best engineers, they want to go to like social media companies or O2O companies, right? Like that was cool. Um, And and fintech just became like, you know, a a big thing over the last, you know, four or five years around the world, right? New Bank, like there's, you know, there's a ton of them now, but uh, that just got to scale recently that made it so it's possible to raise a lot of money for fintech.
1: Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So it seems like, and I think the data would back this up, you know, small business credit card volume is on the rise. One of the stats that we have said that it's set to balloon from 493 billion in 2017 to 686 billion in 2022. What other shifts in customer behaviors have helped fuel Brex's growth?
2: A big one is the percentage of vendors that take credit card has been increasing.
1: So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: if you think about a business of the past, right? Like, let's say you got a, I don't know, like a restaurant, right? Like you're paying, your biggest costs are your rent, which you can't pay on card, your food, which is usually like, um, you know, uh, wholesale. So you pay over check, right? Like you have employees, which are payroll. So it didn't really have a lot of card expenses. Um, which is, you know, kind of like a core part of our monetization business model. Hmm. Then if you go to an e-commerce company, very different. They pay a ton of ads all on credit cards. They pay, you know, um, servers on credit cards. They have a lot of SaaS mm-hmm. vendors like Shopify and, you know, or Toast or, you know, Slack, etc., all going through credit cards. And that being a bigger part of a, a company's like total expenses, uh, that has been like really good for Brex.
1: Totally, those types of shifts all make a ton of sense. And then, of course, the booming number of former tech workers leaving to become comedians—I mean, that must be a huge portion of your revenue.
2: Huge, yeah. That's our—you know—we're even—we're we, going to have a GM for comedians soon.
1: I let me know, uh, hook us up on email. I can deliver product feedback.
2: <laughs> Amazing.
1: <laughs> so, Enrique, you know, as you're thinking about those decisions and where to go next with your customers, and thinking about how all of those customer behavior trends are shifting how do you how do you make those big decisions about where brex should invest next what's your personal decision making process like
2: it's something that we've been iterating right because in our view building a company is just like a series of you know small and big decisions gone right and mm. i think there's like two types of decisions one is the ones that you're not making yourself right that because they're smaller and they're more day- to day or even mm-hmm. they're they're bigger, but they're just you know the company grew enough. And the important thing there is creating the right systems for your team to basically make those decisions correctly. right? Hmm. So if you have a decision between prioritizing product a or product B, how do you make so that they know to prioritize prioritize product B instead of product a because of the system you put in place, right? So, what are the incentives that they have? What are the North Star metric? Um, what is it that we're optimizing for? Who's the customer they're supposed to be talking to to serving the needs? Hmm. You know, Making sure all those things are super clear and you spend a ton of time thinking about those things makes the entire company make better decisions, right? And then sometimes there's like these big strategic decisions that you have to make. And for me, the big trade-off there is when you're making like really big decisions, you you need to make sure you have a mix between strategy and like doing the right things for your long term vision mm. and you know what you want your business to be like after a long time. But also things that customers want from you, right? Because it's not only doing I think a lot of companies when they grow, they think that they earn the right to do everything mm. um, because it makes sense for their strategy. But then they don't think enough of, like, why will the customer actually want this, you know?
1: (laughs) Totally. Enrique, I want to go back to a little Enrique lore that we read. I want to hear a little bit about you at age 12. I read about uh, you at age 12, and I, I heard that it all started with a video game. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, so that's kind of how I started coding. Um, I started coding when I was around 12 because there was this game I wanted to play, it was a paid game, and uh, gambling and playing in Portuguese is the same word. Oh, really? Yeah, and when I asked my parents uh, about it, hey, can you pay for this thing for me? They said, no, why are we gonna give you money to gamble? You know, and it's hard to explain, like it was different. Um, so I, I learned that if I learned how to code, I could actually play the game for free and build like a pirate version of the game that, oh my God. you know, I could, me and my friends could play. And then I launched this pirate version of the game and it got... So it became super popular. Um, like, a lot of people started playing because it was free and you know a lot of people don't have the money.
1: Yeah. So
2: that's kind of how I started out, but like six months later, unfortunately, I got some legal notifications saying I was breaking some sort of patents. Oh my God. I didn't really know what patents were, but my mom got super upset.
1: So after that, you created some education startups, but at the <laughs> ripe old age of 16, you created Pagar.me. And what I read was that in just three years, Pagar.me grew to 1.5 billion in volume of transaction processed. Can you tell me a little bit about how you went from coding this game at 12 to building a company that processed billions of dollars in volume by 16?
2: Yeah, totally. So basically, after, you know, we, we I got these legal notifications, I started having like, a, you know, I was just spent all my time doing this. Like it was 100% of my time and energy was building this thing. So I was having this kind of like 14 year old crisis a little bit, of, you know, what do I do <laughs> with my life? But th- then what happened was I started doing some normal stuff, right, to fill my time. So I, don't sure. know, I found a girlfriend, I started watching TV shows. <laughs> and I started watching a TV show called Chuck. Oh now, yeah. I don't know if you've seen it. It's like a really good computer hacker and programmer mm-hmm. that saved the world through clothes, and he was very clumsy. So I kind of identified a little bit, and I was like, "Oh, I want to be exactly like Chuck. Chuck is so awesome, and Chuck mm-hmm. had gone to Stanford, and I was I just I got obsessed with getting to Stanford because Chuck had gone to Stanford. That's
0: amazing. That was why.
1: Really, that was why.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I just compl- I just wanted to be Chuck, um, and uh, so when when that happened. I basically started getting obsessed with how to get into Stanford, but it was kind of a complicated process for Brazilians. You know, like the whole hmm. U.S. application process is not not super easy. Yeah. And then I, I found this Brazilian that was graduating from Stanford, um, and I added him on Facebook, and you know, started chatting with him. He gave me some attention, and it turns out he was starting a startup in Brazil that was like an event bred in Brazil, so ticketing in Brazil. Hmm. And. You know, I was a coder, so we did this deal in which I would code for him for free in exchange. He would teach me the Stanford application process and write me a recommendation letter.
1: Wow. Um, Wow, that's great.
2: So that's kind of how I got into startups. I went to work for this guy for a year, and he basically taught me so much about doing startups. And I was super involved in building a product and everything. And uh, I don't know, it just sounded like a really cool life, this entrepreneur life. So after a year working, I decided I wanted to try to do a company myself. Why not? Yeah. You know, I'm like, so I, I, I learned how to get into to, to college in the U.S. Even though I haven't gotten in yet, I at least learned the process. So I decided to build a company to help other Brazilians with the whole process. So I built this education company that helped Brazilians uh, with the U.S. application process, which got a bunch of users early on, but never monetized in any way. Sure. So it it failed miserably. Mm. Um, but it's kind of got into startups. I met you know a bunch of people. It was interesting. I was not oppressed a, a good amount, so it kind of opened some doors. Yeah. Um, and then I was having these you know huge fights with my mom because she wasn't really into this entrepreneurship thing, and mm. I wanted to. You know, do more of that and less of school.
1: What did she want you to do instead?
2: Uh, just, you know, normal school and go to college and stuff. And at this time, I was saying I'm not going to go to college and all those oh, things. Oh,
0: wow. Okay.
2: Uh, so I had to get emancipated, I moved out of my house, started supporting myself. This whole drama.
0: Oh,
1: my God. Um, yeah.
2: And, you know, so I was kind of running out of money. And I found this hackathon in Miami that was worth $50,000. And I was like, wow, if we can win this thing, it's more time without going back to my mom. Right. So I went there with two friends, and we built this app that was like a dating app that was like Tinder, but instead of geolocation as Facebook friends, you could like and match your Facebook friends. And we tried, and we won it. Um, and we tried to launch the, the, the app as a business, and it didn't really work again. Hmm. But that's how I got into payments, because I started like, trying to charge for this thing. Sure. Um, and it was a really, really terrible experience. So that's kind of how I had my first experience, you know, with, with payment methods. Oh, and it's around the time my, my my co-founder Pedro. And Pedro, he was working at a payments company. So what happened is when Pedro was 14, he got hired by Brazil's largest payments company um, because he was the, one of the only people in, the, in, in Brazil who understood about iOS security. And hmm. they were launching an app needed to be secure. He was hacking iPhones, so it kind of made sense. Yeah. So he got hired at that company, and um, and that's kind of how we he knew about payments. And then we met in the end of 2012 over Twitter, actually.
1: Really? Yeah,
2: fighting text editors Vim versus Emacs. I was Vim. He was Emacs. Um, it got too complicated to fight over 104 characters. We went to Skype. On Skype, we became best friends and just started to start our. Company
1: <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Twitter fights very rarely end in friendship. You know, speaking of your uh, relationship with Pedro and your co-founder, in an interview with The Takeoff, you said, Pedro and I always liked the idea of working on something for 30-plus years. Some people are serial entrepreneurs, and they want to build and sell companies and build multiple things. That was never really our thing. We just wanted to work on something for a long, long period of time. It sounds like prior to Brex, you were already on the way to becoming a serial entrepreneur. What changed in your focus to want to stay on one concept for a long, long period of time?
2: Well, the first the first thing I couldn't do anymore because I got some legal notifications. And my right, right, right. Sure. <laughs> the second thing failed. Sure. happens. The third thing also didn't work. And then mm-hmm. the fourth thing, Pagaram, actually worked. Yeah. Um, And, you know, selling that company was a big decision, but I think one thing that we always like, look, if we're gonna work on something for 30 years, we want it to be something really big. And Mm. at the time when we sold Pogarmint, there wasn't like any Brazilian unicorns, like there were, and it didn't, it wasn't clear that they were gonna happen anytime soon. Interesting. You know, we always thought like, look, if we're gonna spend something, working on something for 30 years, it might as well be something really big. And Mm. we thought that we could build something much bigger in the United States, you know, building something global, et cetera. And, you know, that's kind of what, got us to decide to sell the company in the end. Hmm. Um, And also, look, we were 20 and broke, right? And, you know, we sold the company to change our lives and much easier to think in 30-year horizons when you don't have to worry about your credit card next month, you know?
0: (laughs) It's interesting, too, because while you intend to build for a long, long period of time, the Brex team is consistently shipping new features and new products, essentially. And so it does look like, you know, the company is constantly evolving. Um, one question that I have for you is more on how you think about various different markets and, and how you um, approach the SMB segment. Because I think that's one that's very dynamic and always changing. And there's a bit more of a cyclical nature to the business model. And so how do you think about, you know, will there be a moment where Brex essentially needs to move up market or you'll go more enterprise or do you feel like the market size for startups and SMBs is large enough and that's where you'll stay focused?
2: We're definitely going from tiny to really big. I think, you know, our model, similar to uh, Stripe and a few others, is like getting companies when they're young and sticking with them till they're public and plus, right? So, and... And I think there's two big initiatives in Breakthrough now. One is going even lower market, um, and one is going more up market. Which may, there's a lot of execution challenges with that, but we definitely want to serve companies to the mid market and enterprise, and we definitely want to serve you know companies that are just getting started. So we we, we definitely see with both. Um, we do though, you know, we think that Innovator's Dilemma is kind of like our bible a little bit on how to build products that. In order to build a really successful product for the, you know, for for kind of like more high margin customers like the mid market, you need to nail and be super efficient on the low side, Mm -hmm. um, at least in our industry, because you just create a cost structure and efficiency structure that makes your cost of serving these uh, larger customers much lower. And that allows you to, you know, price more aggressively, you know, build more and hmm. um, than, than before. So that's how we think about it.
0: Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I mean, I know you talked about building the, you know, operating system and especially as companies start to get larger and, you know, for small businesses, maybe they introduce multiple locations or, you know, evolve to different geographies. It's it's awesome to see that you're constantly, you know, releasing new products and new features for this segment in particular. Um what do you think have been some of the hardest decisions that you've had to make in increasing the efficiency for the self-serve business and, and you know, maybe turning away even big customers to stay focused on SMBs and startups at the beginning?
2: Yeah, everyone gives us, like, advice that it's important to stay focused, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, as the company grows, you're doing more stuff, so that becomes a little bit more, okay, what does focus mean when you have, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people that can do more than one thing? and then making sure that you're prioritizing correctly. I think like the hardest in that has been built cash, right? Like our bank account replacement product, because Mm -hmm. it is something that will take a long time to, you know, for us to win like Walmart in our cash account will take like a while. Mm -hmm. Um, Versus card, you know, it's like much, much faster, but we also believe that the bank accounts you know, and a cash management part is like the center of gravity for a company. That if you own that, you know, the company is more likely to buy everything from you. Versus, you know, um, other products are more a little bit more tangential. So, I think building that at the time that we did and investing as much as we have in that product has probably mm. been the most non-obvious decision we made.
1: And you're referring to you said Brex Cash, right? The central account yeah. for businesses. Yeah. So. Something that I saw is that in launching that product, you had to keep pushing the launch. Can you tell me a little bit about what was going through your mind then and how you handled that decision to push the launch out?
2: Look, it was just a lot more complex than we thought it was going to be. You know, mm. that's the, the reality. Like When we started to build it, it what we thought it was going to be six months with 10, 15 engineers. Yep. And then it just started becoming more complex and more complex and mm. more complex and more complex. and. You know, it probably took three times as long, three times as many engineers. Hmm. Uh, wow. You know, it happens, right? So, but I'm super happy we did it though.
0: Oh, for sure. And on the engineering front, was it um, hiring constraints? Was it, you know, a need for specialization? Like, what were some of the challenges that the team is facing internally?
2: I think it's just the bar for being a company's main operational account was much higher than we expected. So, we saw these consumer companies launching like bank account products, right? And, you know, they seem to be working and getting traction, et cetera. But it turns out that the bar for businesses to, you know, have as their main account is much larger. Like they have a bookkeeper, they have employees, they have approvals, they have a lot more constraints and requirements than like a consumer account has. So, we had to build a lot more before, you know, we had good product market fit and good NPS. (laughs) It was just a bunch of missing features uh, early on.
1: Totally. So, Enrique, you know, that's a really difficult decision to push a launch, to have to publicly say that you're pushing a launch, tell the team internally. And I think that it's something a lot of leaders have to go through. I'm wondering if you could take us into the moment that you realized this was a decision that you were going to have to make and announce to the team and externally. Can you tell me a little bit about what that felt like?
2: You know, it was two two forces right at the same time. Um, force number one was we have all these investors, you know, that expected the product to launch, expected the revenue start to come, and the customer acquisition and the models. And then the force on the other side was our brand, which is like, whenever we release the product, what will our customers think about it? Yeah, and. You know, I think for us, the second one was stronger than the first one. That we wanted our second product to be so good that customers would want to buy our third product, you right. know, versus if you screw up your second one, you kind of lose their trust a little bit, you know, and trying to the third one later on. So we just wanted to make sure that our second act was as good or better than our first act. And if that took more time to do it, so be it.
1: And I'm wondering, you know, was there ever a moment where you started to question things? Did you wonder at any point if you had made a wrong turn to go down the central accounts path?
2: Absolutely, yeah. Um, really? Yeah. What were uh, you thinking? It's hard, right? Because, like, when we launched Brex, right, we went from—I'm going to make up numbers, okay? Yeah. I don't know. 100 k in revenue to 200 k in revenue in a month. If you thought— amazing right like Mm -hmm. we're growing a hundred percent this is great and uh and then you know after a year let's say we were you know i don't know at a million and then we were going to 1.3 million 1.5 etc again totally made up numbers and then let's say we're at 10 million in revenue yep and then cash launched and cash went from 10k in revenue to 20k in revenue in one month it's great if you were tiny, but now that I have a base of 10 Mm -hmm. million, it doesn't really move the needle, you know? (laughs) Yes. Um, So I think you set your own expectations really high for these things and you think that they're gonna go much faster than they do, but every new product is almost like a new startup, right? It takes some time to mature and grow and get to the scale. Um, So you need to like give it time to like mature. But I think before I was realizing that uh, we were just, oh, this is like not growing as fast as we thought it was going to grow, you know, is, is it bad, you know, and it, it took a little while to then like start to get into a scale that was meaningful for us, um, for us to get that confidence. So now every time we launch a, a new product, we're like, okay, we know it's not going to be like super meaningful in, in the beginning, but if we keep investing, we keep making it better and we keep doing it, you know, eventually it's going gonna, it's gonna to be really good. So I think we're a little bit more patient there.
1: That's great. So it does sound like something learned came out of that that you can then apply moving forward. So one thing I'd love to spend a little bit of time on is
0: the fact that Brax has partnerships with Amazon and Slack and Zoom and a great rewards program that's really served as a competitive advantage and, you know, something that's created more of a holistic offering for so many types of startups and small businesses and and customers that you serve. Um, How did you think about you know, measuring the impact of each new partner and how did you really structure some of those early partnerships?
2: You know, it's only spent a lot of time early on. Like we wanted to redesign rewards, right? So traditionally rewards for cards were built for individuals. It's like very focused on the consumer. And we wanted like, what are are rewards that businesses would care about, right? And startups would actually care about. Hmm. And so that's kind of where we went. It's like, hey, what are the best software's you know, startups that, what other companies do startups use and let's get discounts and better deals so we can actually create a rewards package that competes in a different angle than Amex because we're never going to beat them at their own game Mm -hmm. and is actually more relevant to our target customer segment. So that's kind of how it, it came to be early on.
1: Awesome. Okay, so Enrique, we have one more question for you. Something that you said earlier, you said, you know, when you were getting into Stanford or when you wanted to go to Stanford, you said that all you wanted was to be Chuck, and I'm wondering, after all of the incredible success of Brex and all the success that you still have ahead of you, who do you want to be now?
2: Honestly, I kind of want to be Enrique. You know, it's like it's been pretty cool <laughs> to be Enrique or something. <laughs> uh, I think that you know one of the things that you learn as an entrepreneur is to you have all these role models, right? And you think that a successful entrepreneur looks like this or looks like that. Yeah. And the more time you spend, you, you realize that being authentic is kind of what allows you to go for many years. It's, it's really hard to try to be someone for 20 years, 30 years, you know, um, and I think one of the lessons, and I think Silicon Valley has a kind of weird effect in this, that it wants this like mold of founder right. that, you know, we are lucky to kind of like be on that mold, you know, and that's, I think why we had an easy time raising money early on, but I think as we grow we're like hey we just want to be ourselves we want to be authentic we don't want to go into some mold that silicon valley creative what great founders look like we just you know want to do our thing for for a long period of time
1: amazing it's such an amazing story i'm excited to watch you guys do it so enrique for companies looking to get brex where can they find out more
2: just go to brex.com and you'll you'll see everything there
1: we love it Okay, Enrique, thank you so much for joining us on The Shake-Up. This was such a delight.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it as well.
1: Awesome. Hey, Rianne, are you ready to do that thing we practiced? Oh my gosh, is it time? I'm ready. Okay, three, two, one. Don't Don't forget forget to subscribe and leave us a review. review. Pretty good. Today's episode was written and produced by Matthew Brown. Production support comes from Lauren Schild. Our engineer is William Lowe. With research from Corey Broccolini. And special thanks to Kyle Denhoff and Lisa Toner.
0: We have some amazing guests coming up this season
1: that you won't want to miss. See you next time.